Hey guys, it's Adam Rapport, and this is the Bon Appetit Foodcast. So, after 18 years at Bon Appetit, deputy editor and our chief restaurant critic, Andrew Knowlton, is packing up the family and moving to Austin, Texas. Uh, Andrew has worked at BA longer than anyone ever, I think. Uh, He literally grew up here. And as I wrote in my April editor's letter, uh, since 2011, when I came on board, he has been that guy on staff we all turn to again and again. Like whether we're unsure if a budding restaurant trend is really a trend, like we just ask Knowlton. Can't find a contact for that chef we want to cover in the magazine? Ask Knowlton. Wait, should we even be covering that chef? Ask Knowlton. So, Needless to say, we will miss him, uh, and this week's episode is sort of a goodbye, although he will continue to write for the magazine and do our Best New Restaurants uh, issue in September. Uh, he will no longer be in the office. He'll just be an editor at large. And after that, senior food editor Andy Baragani is going to read an essay that he wrote for our April issue uh, about accepting his identity through cooking. So let's do this. Here is Andrew and me. Andrew Knowlton, welcome to your exit interview. Thanks so much. <laughs> Tell you what, I'm going to spare you the accolades and the nice words because you'll get plenty of those tonight at your going away party. Okay. Uh, actually, I'm kidding. It's going to be a full-on roast tonight. Is it? Yeah, yeah. No no kind words at all. Is it going to be multiple people or just you? There'll be multiple people. Okay. Yeah, you'll get the full treatment. Do I have anything people can roast me on? <laughs> I think I'm a pretty... Yeah, yeah I, think we, I think we'll have ample material. <laughs> Anyways, all right, so 18 years at Bon Appetit. Yep. Uh, you're moving to Austin, Texas. I am. Hell of a town. Uh, but before we let you go, uh, we're going to take a page, quite literally from one of our sister brands here at Condé Nast, uh, Vanity Fair. Okay. And we're going to, I don't know, subject you uh, to the Proust questionnaire, uh, which is the back page in Vanity Fair. 36 questions, I wow. would say. 36. Wow. So, yeah, we got we got to burn through this. Okay. Uh, 35, excuse me. 35. Uh, that will hopefully reveal something about your personality, your, your food predilections, uh, what you love, what you hate. Okay. All right, you ready to do this? I'm ready. All right. What is your idea of the perfect meal? <laughs> what does that mean? Exactly. That's like that's that's just what you have to review. What is your idea of the perfect meal? Man, can I come back to no, that? No, it's not that hard. What's your perfect meal? Like the food? Oh my god, this is going to take forever. What, yes. What is your you answer? The question you got like in Vanity Fair, you have like a line to do it. All right. What's your my idea? idea? Is is champagne, lots of champagne and lots of fried chicken. Ooh, those yeah. are my two favorite things in the world. Sounds perfect. All right. What food are you most afraid of? Kidneys. Ooh, yeah. Because my dad uh, used to be a nephrologist, which is a kidney doctor. So I think there's something there. Because you know the function of the kidney is. So like it's your pure, it's like your urine and it filters. Stuff. It filters urine. Yeah. If you ever kidneys are fragrant. If you ever someone in a restaurant is eating them next to you. Uh, can I tell a little? Yeah. So when I first moved to New York City, that was when they were doing the like 20, well, it was probably 1997 when I moved here. So the nine, uh, $19.97 lunch, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the- Restaurant week. Restaurant week. And so I went to this restaurant called Le Cote Basque, which is now closed, but it was a legendary French restaurant. And the only two choices were salmon, for the entree, were salmon and kidneys. And I didn't want salmon because I thought, well, I didn't move to yeah. New York City to eat salmon. <laughs> so I got the kidneys. It was the first time I'd ever had kidneys. And they were they were the size of, like, 
a golf ball. Like they were lamb kidneys, so really tiny. Ooh. And they were cut in half and they looked like a kidney. Like you could see the like nephrons <laughs> and all that. And I took one bite and I, I literally gagged and it came with mashed potatoes. And so I basically spent the whole meal cutting up the kidneys and then putting them underneath the mashed potatoes so the waiter would think that I had eaten all <laughs> the kidneys. What is the dining trait you most deplore in yourself? Too many questions. Oh, you mean like to the waiter and stuff? Yeah, I asked too many questions. Yeah, I'll, I'll attest to that. Yeah. <laughs> what is the dining trait you most deplore in others? Just flat out rudeness. Hmm. Um, treating people, treating servers or whoever like they're there to, you know, to please you. I've always said that the reason that I have such good times at most restaurants is because I meet people halfway. Yes. And as the restaurant, a lot of people just go in thinking they should be waited on and every little whim that they have and just being rude to people. And then, and then they have a bad time. Well, no shit. You had a bad time. <laughs> as I wrote about in my editor's letter in the April issue, April issue yeah. about yourself, you, you have a knack for engaging uh, the wait staff. And I do. The, I think bartenders. I think that's part of going out is having that relationship, even if it's for 35 minutes in a fast casual restaurant or three hours at some mm -hmm. multi-course thing is. You know, having relationships like you're on a first date for the first time, you got to talk and yeah. like get to know the people. Also, you learn a lot that way. You learn a lot, yeah. Which living chef or restaurant tour do you most admire? Wow, that's tough. It's a really hard question. Well, you got to pick one. Yeah, I would say I would say Renee Erickson from Seattle, Washington, because every restaurant of hers that I go to. I just fall in love with, you know, it's, it's, uh, name, Walrus, name well, the first was, um, the boat street cafe, which was her first restaurant. And that was like when I was really young coming up and it was just, you know, farm to table was kind of just starting, but it was the Pacific Northwest and eating oysters and champagne and having a brunch that she had made. It was this open aired. And I think it was, there was just a certain way about them that, they were light and bright and fun and not so serious. And then she opened Walrus and the Carpenter, which I still think is one of my top 10 restaurants of all time. Oysters, you know, you can get, you know, sauteed herring or seared scallops. Um, and then she's, you know, she's opened up three or four after that. And just every one of them, I just, uh, there's something about her food. It's simple and straightforward uh, without being so ingredient driven. And then it's just the vibe that she creates in her places. Very loving atmospheres. What is your greatest extravagance? Bicycles. <laughs> you own a few, right? I own, well, I have 11 in, in my Brooklyn apartment. And how, then, how, that's not, is that physically possible? Yeah. I have, oh I have four on the walls because they hang on the walls. Those are the, the nice ones that I don't ride that often. Hence why your wife wants to move to Austin. Exactly. I got her out. And then I have, I have five in the bedroom. I have two under the bed. And oh. then I have another 10 in at a house in, in Rockland, Maine. Jesus. That's my biggest extravagance. But it's a good one because it's healthy. It's not like... Keeps you svelte. It's not drugs or anything. Yeah. Um, that was a fun one. What is your current state of mind? Um, right now? Um, I'm a little bit sensitive, I would say, right now. Two or about? I've gone through a lot of life changes right now. I'm leaving a job of 18 years. Yeah. I'm leaving New York, which I've been into for almost 25 years, and uh, I don't know what the future holds. 
Well, you're going to find out soon. Yeah. Uh, what do you consider the most overrated ingredient? I still have to go with foie gras. I just don't get it. Oh, yes, you do. A good seared foie gras I back in the day. I just don't. I think it's a oh. one-note thing. I really... It's like it's. I think it's fatty foods. I think that and pork belly are are right next to each other. And, and yes, both of them can be good at certain times. But I just they're a one note thing. I just I don't get them. And they're kind of poorly raised. Uh, you know how they're yes. created. You could t- certainly take issue. I would with say that. foie gras. That doesn't mean I don't like it, but I just think it's overrated. On what occasion do you lie? Well, I lie every time I go to a restaurant when I ask all those questions, and they're like, "Do you work in the industry?" And I'm like, "No, I'm 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 just here for a tech conference." That's that's usually what I say. So I lie all the time. I possibly also lie about how many times. Well, I'm not gonna. I can't admit that. On on. Never mind. Keep going. Keep going. When you do go out to eat, what do you most dislike about your appearance? What does that mean? <laughs> what, do you, what do you dislike about your appearance when you go out to dinner? Like you're you're walking into a nice restaurant or something. Is there anything you're like? Hmm. Well, I'm never I'm never dressed as as well as I should be dressed. Why not? Because as you know, I I for a while there I dressed like I was a 16 year old skateboarder. I would say not for a while. I would say still. Still? Yeah. Do I still dress that way? You're wearing a black ATL sweatshirt. Uh, Funny colored pants. You typically have a flat brim baseball hat and t shirt. I've on. gotten away from that. I, I did wear baseball caps for a long time. For a I long, did. long time. I did, yeah. So I guess my appearance. But I also, I don't know, maybe I'm scared of getting old. Oh, this is a fun one. What living chef or restaurant tour do you most despise? Oh, please. I'm not answering. Yes, you that. have to. It's a Proust questionnaire, dude. You got to. I despise? Is there a type of chef or type of restaurant tour? How about that? I don't. I don't like chefs who. We all have to make money in the world, but I don't like chefs who have success off of one restaurant and then immediately start cloning them and opening ten of them. Mm-hmm. I think. I think it just waters down your brand, and I'm not going to write about you. And I just think it's it's boring. It's just like being a musician and like coming up with the same sound for every album. Your fans might want that, but you don't want that, and it's not good for your longevity. So there's a bunch of those mostly guys who just open restaurants left and right and they have no identity left anymore. I find yeah. it sad. A little hollow. Yeah. What is the quality you most like in a waiter? I think it's passion. passion. It's passion. It's passionate knowledge, I guess. Somebody who cares why they're there and isn't just there for the part time. It's something that you realize when you go to Europe for the first time or Asia is that people want to be doing what they're doing and that it's not just a, a gig. I like candor. I like when a, when a waiter's like, yeah, that's that's not very good. Right. You should definitely get this instead. Right. They but, actually know what they're talking about, and they are not afraid right. to tell you. I think that's wrapped up in knowledge. The yeah. more you talk to a waiter, the more they'll you know think that we're on the same level, and, and they'll tell you the truth about that the, that the rockfish is actually trout and that it's three days old. Yeah. <laughs> What's the quality you most like in a bartender? I just friendliness, I guess. Being friendly. I think they're so... When I was coming up in the cocktail world, a lot of the bartenders who were immensely talented just weren't that friendly. And because I didn't go to bars in the 70s and 80s and like when like you just had, you know, salt of the earth bartenders and then they just got so pretentious. And I think now finally we're getting back to people being just a friendly bartender who you can talk to. Who knows when you just want to sit 
at Prime Meats and read the New Yorker or just read your phone and leaves you alone, even though they know mm-hmm. you really well. So I think I think just being friendly. Which words or phrases do you most overuse? I should ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> Pimento cheese. <laughs> no. um, do you know what I say all the time is I say I say don't take this the wrong way a lot. Like, don't take this the wrong way. That's always, that's always a great, like, procedure. It's yeah, like, it's so dumb. I don't know why I do it. I think my father did it to me. Don't take this the wrong way. How do you bat at this? If I had to answer these questions about myself, I would. I don't know if I. I, I, I don't know, know if I have like the, the perspective, especially on the spot. I know the spot is a tough right. thing. That's the thing with the Vanity Fair. So you have time to write out the answers. Right. What or oh, this is a tough one, Nolan. Don't screw this one up. Okay. What or who is the greatest love of your life? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, my wa- my wife. You sure? Yeah, I'm okay. sure. I'm sure. She's the. Let me tell you this. She's the only person. I met her at a restaurant in Brooklyn. Uh, she's the only. What pers- year? Uh, that would have been two thousand. Uh, bef- two thousand is okay. right, right before nine eleven. Um, she's the only person who has ever walked into a room. Who kind of like took my breath away. Hmm. Man nice. or man or woman, just yeah. like whether it's a celebrity, like I, she walked in. I was like, I told Charlie, who was the chef at the grocery in Brooklyn, I was like, you gotta hire her, <laughs> you gotta hire her. <laughs> and the rest is history. When and where were you happiest, restaurant wise? Oh wow, that's a good question. Um, I would I would say there's a there's a place just off in Oslo just off the coast called Lillehaber and you have to take a boat to get there a little um, kind of a skipper and um, I was with Julep who's my oldest daughter and then Signa is my other one who's my baby and my wife and um, it was with her family Christina's family and my family and it's a, basically a, you're on a little island um, and they the boats kind of bring in the little sweet shrimp mm. and also the um kind of norwegian lobsters and you they just kind of dump it on the table and you eat you know in the midnight sun so it's like 11:30 at night with the sun shining and you're just eating with your hands wow and that was kind of an amazing experience cuz you're surrounded by water what were you drinking we were drinking provence rosé which mm. can't beat that yeah and the in the cool kind of uh, bottles, you know, the little kind of shapely bottles. Yeah. Have you never written about this for BA? You never asked. <sighs> yeah. Which talent would you most like to have? Does patience count as a talent? No, because no. the next okay, the so next the next question uh, will get okay, you to so that. Okay, so I wish the talent that I had the most is I wish I could I wish I could jump. Basically, I wish I could dunk a basketball. That'd be awesome. I'll never be able to do that in my life. Like I can run a quick mile or I can ride a hundred miles in a day and I can hit, you know, I don't know if I can hit a home run in a major league ballpark, but I can hit the ball far, but I cannot, I've never come close to, I've dunked a tennis ball. Yeah. You're six, two, six, one. I don't act like I'm that tall. And six, one dunk. and a half. Yeah. And I can't, I can't, dunk, I can't dunk a basketball. I just want to know what that feels like. Yeah. And you never will. I never will. <laughs> can you? In high school, I could, like, on a wood court, you know. Right. Feeling good. Yeah. Yeah, about myself. Or yeah. high college, I guess. Pavement's a different situation. Yeah. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? 
patience. I wish I was yeah. more patient. Where does these, this impatience surface typically? Well, it comes from my father. Because no. it, se- it seems like you're pretty patient when you're writing an article and it takes you like six weeks to get it done. That that would strike me <laughs> as patience. I think that's called patience. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 well, patience involved in like, then that leads to a, a, like a temper. I, yeah. I, I, I have, I've gotten better as I've gotten older, but I do have like, I get impatient when I feel that people aren't kind of with me. Yes, I've, I've, I've witnessed that. Yeah. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> HR can talk to you about that. Um, <laughs> what do you consider your greatest achievement while at Bon Appetit? Um, just lasting 18 years. Um, I don't know. It was a pretty special day when I went from like, this was in 2006 or something. I think going from just being a, an associate editor to being like the restaurant editor, like having a niche and, you know, becoming like a voice for the magazine in that something that I had always cared truly about. I would say that. All right. If you were to die and come back as a person or a thing, what would it be? Oh God. That's a weird question. That's a weird question. Uh, I don't know, probably like a, I've always thought I'd like to come back as like a dolphin or fish or of some sort. I just want to know what it feels like to swim in the ocean. (laughs) Wow. I really do. I really do. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You better answer this one correctly. Where would you most like to live? You mean like besides New York and Austin, Texas? I don't know. Where would you most like to live? Well, you live in New York right now. I live in New York now. Uh, where would I most? I, I mean, I'm I'm boring, man. I, I would want to live in, in Paris at some really? point. Really? Yeah. I love Paris. Okay. Just, I mean, not perm- I just want to know what it like to be like a, a, a local there. I want to have a little flat there. Flat. Flat's more of a British word, right? Yeah. You have a, fl- a l- flat in London. Oh, what a you, flat, yes. What do you have in Paris? Yeah. You have like a, I don't know, like a little- Peter Terre? Yeah. Know. Ooh. What is your most- treasured kitchen tool oh i i have a huge well i have one in particular wooden spoon that was given to me by my grandmother no longer living and it's what she used to make her here i go again pimento cheese with her famous her famous pimento cheese which the recipe is run in bon appetit several times um can i take issue with that yeah, I ahead. made it one time for a football game. You're gonna take on my exit interview. You're gonna take issue with my grandmother's pimento <laughs> yeah. cheese recipe. I thought it was. It's just a lot of cheese. It's like okay, after a couple of bites, I'm like, that's just. It's just very cheesy. But it's a snack. It's something you have. It's not like you sit down and like I'm gonna make myself pimento cheese. It's something that you have at a garden party, or you have at a funeral, or you have at a wedding, or you have at a master's you know, party. I had. I, we were with our mutual friend Gabe recently, and I want to say I had some of the pimento cheese from the meat hook. At, in Brooklyn, they 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 sell one. It's kind of it's kind of loose. I like the looseness. Well, I, I'm not gonna. I'm the fact that you're comparing. I love the guys at the Meat Hook, but they're comparing that Brooklyn-made stuff to my grandmother's Southern-inspired pimento cheese is just disrespectful. I think we, just, I think we can take it back to the <laughs> test kitchen and improve upon it. Uh, what do you reg- <laughs> what do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? What would I- that's that's from Van. Yeah, um, an empty bottle of whiskey. <laughs> no, I. Um, you know, can I answer this one for you? Yeah, you at a restaurant at a table of twelve. That is true. Not even twelve, six. And everyone's trying to order oh, and asking questions it. it's the worst. and like, oh, no, you go first. I, I haven't decided what to get yet. And then like, 
and then they, they don't ask a question. They should have asked a question to the waiter, and then they get their dish, and they're like, "I, I thought I was going to be this." I'm like, "No, I actually said that the men you should." Yes, that is my that is my worst. I will not like even if I was going out with family members, I would be like, I can't go out with that many people. And then we're the getting, check comes, and everyone pulls out. A, like, right, we're doing six it's credit the cards. Worst. Something happened to me in high school with splitting checks and all that. Like, I would rather pay than have to go through that misery. Or the worst is like three of the credit cards want individual, but then two of them are for two people. So right. the waiter's got to divide up. Thank what, you for knowing that about me. What is your favorite occupation? What does that mean? I don't know. It's, it's like a five-word question. I think those words are pretty simple. What is your favorite occupation? That I've had? I don't know. It doesn't. It just says, <laughs> what is your... I'm just bad. Talk to Vanity Fair. My favorite occupation. Um, you want me to answer this one for you again? Sure. You would like to be a professional cyclist. Oh, that. Yeah. I'm what, just, what would be my dream job? Oh, you could interpret it that way. You, that's the thing with the Proust questionnaire. You can interpret it any way you want. Yes. I would like to be able to ride the Tour de France and finish the Tour de France. With or without the um, aid of drugs? I don't care. I would do it either way. <laughs> I would do it either way. <laughs> Whatever it takes. What is your most marked characteristic as a restaurant critic? Ooh, good question. Um, I would I would think, uh, I would say quirky. I like I like weird kind of quirky restaurants. Mm. Um, a bit unexpected, I think. Um, I think everyone's looking for those unique experiences in dining out, and sometimes the sameness is the thing that drags me down the most just how much you know and i think anytime you get it goes back to that passion of of a waiter or a chef anytime you get some kind of crazy weird those are the meals that you remember the most you know that that are kind of quirky yeah i think you're good at uh or more than good but uniquely talented at conveying your personal passion and relationship with the restaurant onto page in terms of engaging the waiter and Mm -hmm. the owners and the chefs and getting that backstory and really sort of taking what you love about a place as opposed to just an objective review of a restaurant does that make sense yeah Yeah. i mean you you, you have a very personal way of writing right i think again going back to i think if people are active diners as opposed to passive diners engaging uh, on whatever restaurant they're at, asking questions, I think it, 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 the chance of you having an amazing experience improve vastly. What do you most value in your colleagues? Hmm. Um. Well, he's really struggling with this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought you were gonna have a long list. Just trying to figure out an, a colleague I value. No, I'm kidding. Um. <laughs> I guess, I, I don't know, I found these are cheesy answers. I, I guess honesty. I want people to be honest with me. Do you really? I do. Okay. Yeah, you're always honest with me. Yeah, I try to be. Carla Lolly Music is always honest with me. How does that work out? I mean, sometimes <laughs> it sucks. That's when the temper comes in. But no, I mean, I think that's... Yeah, so honest, honesty is crucial. Honesty is crucial. There's too many fake things out there. Who are your favorite food writers? I would say Elizabeth David of all time. She was a British writer, um, no longer living. She came out with these little penguin paperbacks that are probably the books that I cherish the most. There's one Mediterranean food. There's one summer cooking. They're all recipe-based books, but just her way of writing was just 
that kind of enamored me into like that food was something that you didn't just eat, that it was something that you could, you know, romance about and, and think about more deeply. Um, I mean, as I, I always loved R.W. Apple. I think he was John McPhee, who used to write for The New Yorker, wrote a book um, on bluefish that mm. I've always loved. He also um, wrote a book on oranges. Um, Just did a big piece for The New Yorker last year about writing, which was pretty interesting. Yeah, he's a, yeah. I w- so I would say R.W. I mean, I always loved M.F.K. Fisher, too. Oh, I going no, this is kind of like, I feel like this is like a college senior year of high school sort of question who is your hero of fiction mm. does that count movies or does that have to be like a, a, a we're talking novel Proust questionnaire dude mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a window into how your mind thinks I mean I've always wanted to be Indiana Jones <laughs> So I, I, I would say. Oh, you you wear enough hats and you like, you look unshaved half the time. And he gets he gets to travel all around the world, <laughs> going to just... cool places. I hate snakes. He hates snakes. Oh, I would like to be. I would think Indiana Jones because mm-hmm. right. he's always curious. That's true. He's yeah. always curious, and he's got a healthy love life too. <laughs> oh my lord! Uh, oh, I, I like this one. Which closed restaurant do you wish would reopen so you could eat there? Mm, man, that's a good question. What would yours be? I never ate at Lutess. Oh, you never ate it? We were no. talking about Lutess the other day. Yeah, yeah, that was an amazing restaurant. At, you know, at, at its heyday. Um, man, I mean, things come into my mind. Like, there was a restaurant in Brooklyn called Applewood, which was the first place I had a lot of different like types of food. But I would have to go. I would have to go with the grocery in in Brooklyn, New York. That was where I first learned how to cook. That's where, like, I feel like I found food in so many ways. Um, it closed like a year ago, it, and it was part of that Brooklyn, that you know, the Brooklyn Renaissance of people going across the bridges to eat in Brooklyn. That was a special place. Who are your heroes in real life? I hate. Th- I've never been asked these kind of questions. I don't like <laughs> these kind of questions. I don't think that deeply about like who my heroes are because I feel like if if I say somebody that I don't actually know, then they're gonna end up being a bum. Um, my heroes. This is where you say my daughters. <clears throat> You're Do like, I no, say my daughter? No, no, I wouldn't call them my heroes. <laughs> I mean, they're the love of my life, but um, I don't know. Pass on that. I don't have any heroes. <laughs> What are your favorite restaurant names? Like the names of restaurants? Yeah. Wow. Like what restaurant name do you think? Oh, that's a good name. I think there's a new restaurant that's quite debatable in California or in L.A. called Destroyer. Mm-hmm. I think that is an amazing name for a restaurant. Really? Yeah, just like to name your restaurant Destroyer. All, after Kiss's best album, 1976? I don't know. Maybe yeah. it is. <laughs> I just, I'm just curious. Or there's also the Destroyer of the Musician. Or destroy the musician. Yeah. And there's a new, there's a new bar opening which I'm fascinated by in, in San Francisco by a guy named S- Scott Baird. And his name of the restaurant's going to be only because he loved the sound of these two words together, Rococo Cantaloupe. Mm. That's the name of the bar. And I was like, what does that mean? He's like, I just always love saying those two words more than any other words. So I'm going to name my restaurant Rococo. Rococo cantaloupe makes you thirsty. You just does, hear that, yeah. right? You, you want to drink. I think something fruity and fresh. Yeah. 
What current restaurant trend do you most dislike? Fast casual. Really? I hate it. I think it's the 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 end of restaurants as we know them. They're they're just fast food restaurants like wrapped up behind like some subway tile and wow. Some fresher ingredients. I don't like it. I think it's bad for food. Everyone wants I look I'm all for things wanting to be fast and quicker and you get better quality things, but they're <laughs> For is what it, you get, they're expensive. It's nice during the workday. They're not that good. I know, I know, but I don't yeah. know. Bring your lunch. What is your greatest regret? Not buying an apartment in New York in 2000. Um, that would have been smart. Yeah, that would have been smart. I, I don't know what my biggest regret is. I don't really have any regrets. I mean, they're all just they're all just learning uh, experiences that we have. All right, you got two more. <laughs> this is a good one. How would you like to die? How would I like to die? Uh, in the Tour de France, going <laughs> over, climbing Mount Ventoux and just, you know, kind of going over the edge. No, um, I don't want to die under ice. That's the only way that I don't want to die. Like suffocating, un- drowning while being wow. able to see people <laughs> under a sheet of ice. God, I think about that more often than I should. Um, I'd say, yeah. How do I want to die? I want to die in my sleep, like after a good meal. Yeah, there yeah, you go. All drunk. right. Drunk. Yes. Yes. Uh, last question, Andrew Knowlton. What is your motto? Do you have a motto for yeah. me? <laughs> I have my motto. What's your motto? Don't fill up on the bread. <laughs> Mine would be always have another. I like it. And Andrew Knowlton, you have completed the Bon Appetit Proust questionnaire. Thanks so much for 18 great years, and we will see you at your going away party tonight. Thanks for having me for 18 years. You're welcome. <laughs> Later. <laughs> I was a curly-haired wide-eyed toddler with a big smile, and I was mute. My parents, worried that their three-year-old had yet to say a word, took me to a speech therapist, only to find out there was nothing wrong. I simply was not ready to speak. I couldn't yet open myself up to the world. Soon, I learned to say made-up words like gene for ice cream and hum-hum for food. By the time I was four, I could speak well enough to ask for the birthday gift of my dreams, a Fisher-Price kitchen. Standing on my bright white plastic countertop with its yellow sink and pink cookware, I thought I was a petite Jacques Pepin. You have to understand, I didn't watch Power Rangers. I sat in front of the TV, mesmerized by Pepin and Julia Child and Martin Yan on Yan Can Cook. When I was still light enough to be picked up and set on the kitchen counter, I'd gaze at my mother as she combined spices from unlabeled jars to create dishes she had learned from her mother in Iran, ones that I would eventually learn from her. I'd watch as she went through the meticulous steps of making polo, fluffy Persian rice, before tossing it with saffron that had been bloomed in rose water. In the summer, my eyes would tingle and begin to water from the harsh smell of vinegar all over the house, as my father and grandparents would make torshi, Iranian pickles. Food, and cooking in particular, is what my parents brought with them when they immigrated from Iran to Berkeley, California in 1977, 12 years before I was born. I remember the charred, lacy texture of piaz d'or, literally hot onions. I was in awe of the rich colors of the thick, glossy fruit jams my dad would make. I didn't know it at the time, but it was the beginning of my education as a cook. When I started to experiment in the kitchen in my preteens, I wasn't making anything complicated. 
my idea of fancy was topping a frozen pizza with sun-dried tomatoes and fresh basil. By the time I was 15, my cooking got more elaborate. I began setting cookbooks and making labor-intensive dinners, artichoke soup with tomato, confit, roasted quail stuffed with pine nuts and currants. After the love I had for my mother, food became my second love. It turned into an obsession. But not until recently did I realize that it was what allowed me to figure out who I am. When I started kindergarten, I was a painfully quiet boy with a deep love for a particular purple turtleneck sweater, little interest in sports, and zero desire to kiss girls. While I didn't know the exact term, I knew I was gay, and I was picked on at school because of that for years. I was six years old when I got chased for the first time by a group of boys with sticks. I was eight years old when I realized I was the only boy at an all-girls birthday party. I was nine years old when a group of laughing boys locked me in a bathroom stall, and I just hoped no adult would find me to avoid any further embarrassment. I was 12 when I ran faster than any other boy in a race. I'd had plenty of practice. I could barely say aloud the words that I was being called. If I repeated them, I would be calling myself that, revealing my sexuality for the first time. Finally, when I was 12, I transferred to a new school district where I didn't know anyone. It was my Madonna Ray of Light Kabbalah moment, a time to rebrand. I changed the way I dress, I tamed my thick black hair, I became a master at hiding my sexuality. By the time I finished high school, I had already worked in three restaurants, including Chez Panisse. At the time, there was a sous chef at the cafe upstairs who was gay. He was calm and quiet and strong, and he was an exceptional cook. There was no tolerance for dismissive or negative behavior toward anyone for their gender, sexuality, or race. I remember a male line cook being fired after saying to a woman who was interning, just sit over there and look pretty. Shapenese showed me that a kitchen was a place where I could belong. That is, to this day, the only restaurant kitchen I've worked in alongside another out gay man on the line. While the restaurants I cooked at were male-led, they weren't exactly environments that encouraged me to come out. But I liked being part of a team, working toward a common goal. We were all there to make food that was delicious as possible. I liked wearing a uniform. But more than anything, I liked feeling, for the first time, that I was being judged on my skills and nothing else. And as I became more confident as a cook, gliding swiftly and efficiently at my station, tasting a dish to decipher whether it might need more salt or acid, I began to accept my sexuality both within and outside of that space. When I moved to New York for college, I met someone who would become my first boyfriend, and there was no turning back. We were each other's first boyfriends, and like many other young people in love, I thought that my first relationship would be an everlasting one. With his help, I came out to my mother, but I wasn't ready to come out to my dad, and I asked my mother not to tell him. She kept that secret for what must have been a year and a half. When I finally told my father, I didn't say I'm gay. I said, I'm seeing a man. He said, no matter what, I've always wanted you and your sister to be happy and healthy. 
I thought I would feel a huge weight lifted after coming out to my dad. But it doesn't really happen like that. A year later, I was in front of the historic Stonewall Inn in New York the day gay marriage became legal. I don't know how we all ended up there. Hundreds of people celebrating the late afternoon. I just remember everyone texting each other, when are you getting there? How are you getting there? Are you leaving work early? I was 21 years old. It wasn't like I was planning to get married anytime soon. I just knew I needed to be there. In the middle of this, I got a call from my father. I'm not even sure why I answered at that moment, rather than calling him back later, because typically he just likes to check in and make sure I'm dressed warmly enough. But that day was different. He said he didn't want to hold me up. He just wanted to hear my voice and say that he knew it was a big day for us in New York. I spoke to him for barely a minute. He said so little, but it was everything I needed to hear. By the time I turned 21, I had found my sexuality in my career, but there was another part of my identity that took longer to figure out. To explain it, I have to rewind back to grade school, to the morning of September 11th, 2001. Watching the news, I had no idea what the consequences of what that day were going to be. In the years that followed, I became, for the first time in my life, highly aware of my ethnicity. As an adolescent, I no longer stood out because of my sexuality, but instead of my coarse hair, my olive skin, my thick eyebrows, my full beard. I had Iranian painted all over me. The name-calling started again, but this time it wasn't he, she, gay, or girl, but instead terrorist, sideburns, Durka. I learned early on that since my last name began with a B, I'd be one of the first people on the list during roll call. Well, I guess I should tell you now. My real name is Andy She, not Andy. Every year, on the first day of school, I could see my teacher hesitate when pronouncing my name. And I'd quickly cut the teacher off and say, Andy's fine from middle school into college. Andy's fine. I'm surprised no one ever called me Andy's fine. I began to throw away my lunches. I didn't want anyone to ask what was in them. No more cuckoo, my mother's Persian herb frittata. No more kalbas sandwiches, all beef martadella, wrapped in lavash bread. I would ask my parents not to drop me too close to school and feared that my peers would see their brown skin or hear their accents. When it came to the beard that appeared on my 12-year-old face, I shaved every day and stole a bit of my mother's foundation to cover it up. I started telling people I had some Italian in me. My last name, Baragani, became Baragani. I invested in a t-shirt that read, Italian Stallion. It would later become infamous among my best friends. Even when it came to my first love in New York, I initially told him I was only half Iranian, which was a partial truth that freed me from being entirely associated with my heritage. Around this time, I interned in the test kitchen at Sever. The editor-in-chief at the time, James Oslin, and the executive food editor, Todd Coleman, told me they were going to do a story on Iran. My first thought was, this is just an awful idea. This was 2010. 
tensions were high between the U.S. and Iran, where Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was president at the time. After all, that time spent working my way up in restaurants, I wasn't sure I wanted to be associated with Iranian food. Ever since I was a gutsy 16-year-old, working up the courage to ask the staff at Chez if I could help out on Friday nights, I'd been dedicated to mastering a particular style of cooking. My most recent stints had met the fine dining restaurant Corton and a Scandinavian pop-up called Frey. Iranian food was what I'd grown up on, but I had worked so hard to get away from it. James and Todd asked me to develop the recipes from, for their Iran story. While I had eaten Iranian food nearly every day growing up, I didn't exactly know the process and traditions. I was familiar with saffron and barberries, but I couldn't prepare any of the fragrant stews or elaborate rice dishes that serve as the backbone of the cuisine. So, for the next three weeks, I called my mom almost every day and talked to her for hours, translating her handfuls and pinches to cups and teaspoons, recreating her recipes in the test kitchen. Eventually, about ten of the final recipes that appeared in the issue were adapted from my mother's. Sever published a piece titled Behind the Iran Story. It was a letter dedicated to my mother and me, in which Todd thanked us for our contributions and said that the story couldn't have happened without us. When the issue came out, people both in and out of the food industry embraced it and reached out to me, thanking me for shedding some light on the cuisine. My shame began to recede. While I still had a ways to go, for the first time in almost a decade, I felt drawn to the food and culture I had put aside. My Iranianness was no longer something to be embarrassed by. I started a pop-up inside my Brooklyn apartment where I cooked Iranian dishes that I grew up on and ones that I had never heard of. These dinners, definitely not approved by the health department, began to sell out rapidly. When I started working at Bon Appetit a little more than two years ago, I had the same feeling as when I got that Fisher-Price kitchen. In slight disbelief, he had overcome with joy. But that first year, while my excitement was still high, I wasn't happy with the work I was putting out. I was the new kid, the baby, and I could barely get a full thought across without my nerves creeping up and taking over. I struggled to find my voice, my point of view. My lack of confidence was inhibiting me from creating the food I wanted to cook. It got to the point where something as seemingly simple as developing peach dessert recipes became paralyzing. So, as nice as it would be for the story to end with that Iran feature or getting my dream job at Bon Appetit, the truth is that I'm still trying to figure things out. It's not always steady progress. For as many moments of clarity as there have been, there have been periods of shame and confusion and out-of-season peaches. All I can do to move through them is to try to set my doubts aside, get back to the kitchen, and cook. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. 
Our theme music is by Valerie and the Gradies, with additional music by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.